0: We are going in five. Good luck, studio. The My guest ham. on. Th- oh, hello. <laughs> you just did.
1: <laughs> I, I interrupted you by <laughs> saying you old ham. Just, sorry.
0: <laughs> Welcome to the Humorology Podcast with me, Paul Barras. Please remember to like, subscribe and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. My guest on this edition of the Humorology podcast started his career as a sports researcher for Granada Television and now serves as the president of international production at Sony Pictures Television. His work has led to the acquisition and production of some of the biggest hits in the world, including The Crown and Sex Education, just to name a couple. Before his time at Sony, he served as Managing Director of Content and Production at BBC Worldwide, where his team was responsible for shows like Dragon's Den, Doctor Who and Strictly Come Dancing, which holds the record for the most successful reality television format sold in over 60 international markets. When he isn't spreading quality television programming across the globe, you can find him sitting in his own special seat at Old Trafford as a devoted Manchester United fan. Wayne Garvey, welcome to the Humorology podcast. Uh, Thank you, Paul. Nice to be here. Well, it's lovely to have you. And, uh, you know, you must be pleased that United look like they are are going to uh, uh, make it into Europe.
1: Well, Paul, I, I, my my oldest, my youngest daughter and I go to a lot of away games and cup finals, of which uh, we, we've got one coming up. And I don't think there's anything in life which has got the potential to be the most, the greatest amount of pleasure, which is stopping City winning the treble, weighed against <laughs> the greatest possible human misery of being at Wembley when they turn us over and win the FA Cup on their way to a treble. I, I can't imagine that there's any any other thing in life that has within 90 minutes potential for such pleasure and such pain. Yeah, it's proper drama, isn't it? Oh, d- football sport is the best drama. I mean that that that's the that's the thing you can't you know you can't you know and and some of these stories that you know City will sing of United fans we live in the past because we've got. A glorious past and some of the drama. What's interesting about the this has now become a football uh, podcast, Paul, <laughs> uh, is the story of the 1999 season of Manchester United. School is one of unbelievable drama and last minute wins, etc. I, I think th- the sad thing about cities, City, are a brilliant machine. I know the people who run the club. They're unbelievably fit. They're brilliant at what they do, but there isn't the romance and the drama this season that you had in 1999 with the late goals against Liverpool in the FA Cup and, and the FA Cup semi-final, the Juventus European. Shall I sh- shut up now, Paul? So we can... <laughs> <laughs> no,
0: because uh, as a United fan, I could talk about this all day. To be okay, honest with right. you, and everything. <laughs> uh, well, and funnily enough, um, I uh, earlier this week we just
1: uh, recorded Clive Tilsley. Who? Oh, my friend Clive! Yeah, Clive and I worked together at Granada, as you said in the the um, that sort of thing of my career. We worked together, and we we still. In fact, I think we've got our our with our wives we've got dinner coming up quite soon. Well, then you can both discuss your time on the
0: Humorology podcast. We, <laughs> I'm sure you're going to discuss. Nothing we'll else. talk about. <laughs> So anyway, you were born in Plymouth in Devon and where your father was a Royal Marine and your mother was a shop worker. Was humour actually valued in your family?
1: Uh, Yeah, actually, my dad comes from one of uh, nine kids and his family had been moved out of London in the war to Suffolk. And I grew up in Suffolk after, after he got out of the Marines. And it was quite a matriarchal. A collection. There were seven, seven sisters, two brothers, and my grandmother, who was a um, was quite an extraordinary character. Some would say an alcoholic, um, and uh, many stories about her. Um, most of them I couldn't really repeat here. But however, humour was always something to buy. And when you get together now, and it was that sort of piss-taking. You know, I learned at a very early age, actually. Yeah, uh, because you know, it was a big family on my father's side and they all lived and a lot of the, the, the daughters all married American servicemen to get out of Britain to go to America so I've got family all around America but it was always when we got together for family gathering there was that sort of you know quick-witted humour um, which, which is always uh, yeah that was part of our sort of family growing up um, yeah. And so, I mean, you you went to Woodbridge School after that. Was humour part of that coping mechanism? I was an 11 plus boy. I went to a grammar school, which then went private because grammar schools. I'm so old that I actually went to a grammar school. And um, I found it quite tough, actually, because I came from a very different background to most of the, you know, I was a scholarship boy or whatever. Um, and and I, I suppose you had to. I suppose yes, not by being the clown jester, but humour was something definitely, you know, yes, it was something I I had to I had to use to sort of find my position in that sort of society, as it were.
0: So I mean, would you say that that? whole Jesuit thing of give me a child of seven and I will give you a man was true of you. The humor was already there.
1: You you do not know that's a very strange analogy. The Jesuits and a family <laughs> you, the Jesuits, you actually take someone out of their uh, family thing and do something else different to them. Uh Paul. By the way, I had no idea when I signed up to this, it was going to go into a long story about my my life. I can't imagine there's anyone listening to this who's interested in this, by the way. But okay. um but this is quite extraordinary. Um I don't know about that I think humour is something. I love the British sense of humour, actually. And I love the fact we we don't, you know, that thing about what, why is there, why is fascism, why did fascism never really take a hold in Britain in the 1930s in some other of our neighbours? And one of the reasons might be you can't take someone seriously Goose step, yeah. You you just can't. There's something about the British. We like to prick pomposity, don't we? And and that. And I still think that's part of the British character. Humor is part of of what we do. I love the British sense of humor.
0: Well, it's interesting because you spend a lot of time in LA, obviously, uh, as have I, and I've lived there. Uh, What's the contrast there? I mean, they don't really understand the sardonic side of of the humor, do they?
1: Yeah, they don't get irony, do they? I remember being with Clarkson, Jeremy Clarkson, and I were in LA once, and we and and we were talking to some. Oh God, I can't. This is going to be a terrible story now because I can't actually remember the story. But we were talking to some Americans. We were talking about irony, and he was going. You don't really get irony, and he made some ironic statement, which and they didn't get it. And that that was the evidence that they just don't get it. They they don't get they don't get that at all. But they sort of. They fall for our charm a bit, don't they? You know, you know. I mean, and that's the thing about America. Of course, America is this huge continent, and there's lots of different Americas within um, the United States of America. So you've got to be careful; you don't just see the LA bubble as sort of, you know, the whole of America. America. In New York,
0: I find that they have got that. There, there seems to be mm. more of a link to Europe. That's true, and yeah. and their humour is therefore sharper. I would say yes, and it's very
1: European. It's that very Jewish humour as well, isn't it? You know, which yeah. is, you know, and, and there were European Jews who came came over with that brilliant, that brilliant uh, sense of humour that they have. You know, it's so. Yes, you're right.
0: Did you ever see the Neil Simon play, Laughter on the Thirty Fourth Floor? No. which was all about the uh, our show of shows.
1: Oh, yeah. Um, The Sid
0: Caesar and the writers room in that was everybody from Woody Allen to to Mel to I mean, it it was literally everybody who went on to change the whole face of comedy uh, in that room. Uh, Highly recommend it if you haven't. Um, You you've you've got a Ph.D. But a few people in television have a PhD, and and I understand from our conversations that you, at one stage, were even thinking of becoming a politician. What
1: what kind of politician would you have made? Do you think? Uh, well, uh, probably not a successful one. Um, that's the, that's the first thing. I think I I did. I've always been interested in politics. I've been a member of the Labour Party since I was sixteen. So I, I joined when I when I was old enough to join, and I left a couple of times. The Iraq War, obviously. But I keep coming back to the Labour Party, and um, uh, so I, I, you know, I'm, I call myself a socialist. I'm a socialist. I believe in that society should be organised for the benefit of the of the many rather than the few, and that's something I really believe in. I've got lots of friends who, who don't share those views, but that's something I feel very passionately about. Um, I don't. I think the trouble with politics is, you know show business for ugly people and all that. I mean, <laughs> politics now is full, of, if you look at the, the government, it's full of people who've failed to make their mark in other places, the Tory get. You know, if you look at these people like Rob Patel, all of them, they've all, none of them have been successful in the jobs, the careers they set out to do. So they all fell into politics. And I find it inexplicable that somehow they end up running the country. They're completely, you know, they've got no background. They've got no ability apart from having a view. You know, Michael Grove, Gove as, a, as a, a columnist in the newspaper. Oh, that's it. David Cameron was a you know privileged guy who was a very poor communications guy at Carlton who once oh. pretended to be a cleaner to avoid a call from a journalist. You know, these people are <laughs> not high achievers. And um, I, think, I, I think that's one of the sad things in our society, that public service has been kind of devalued. And it's people of my generation to blame for it, really. But people like me had a choice probably, back it back in how long ago it was. And perhaps, would it be, I mean, not just me, but lots of people I know, perhaps we should have, you know, gone down that route, gone off, had careers. What I loved about politicians in the past, I'm not saying they were necessarily better, was a lot of them had a hinterland, didn't they? Particularly after the Second World War, you had all these people who, who had served in war, Dennis Healy, even Macmillan. Yeah, you know, McMillan's whole ethos of of being a one nation Tory was because he had been in the trenches with working class people and seen the sacrifices they make and the humour of them and everything else, which is why. He, he he was opposed to a lot of what Thatcher did um, in in the nineteen eighties. I don't know where I'm going on this again, but anyway, no, but it's um, interesting. It's got to do with humorology, Paul. This is just a, well, no, but well, well, humorology is a
0: broad. It's very interesting because people think that humorology is just about jokes and funny, but actually, humorology is about uh, good humor. It's about humility. It's about humanity and all those things that come into play as a result of it. So actually, what you're saying is really interesting. I mean, because who goes into politics now? Is it the people with humility, humanity, or any
1: kind of good humour? There's that Martin Amis quote, isn't there? Uh, Which I, again, I can't remember now that I saw this week, which is something about the people who rule us basically have no sense of humour and, you know, they've got no humanity to them really. I remember in I was very excited, obviously, like most people were in 1997. I was director of television at Granada when Labour won the election. And I remember that that weekend very, very well. It was a very sunny weekend. I came down to London, actually, and we took a friend's son who was just in a buggy around to Downing. It was all Downing Street. It was was an exciting moment. You thought the world was going to change, even though you sort of knew cynically it probably wouldn't. And then over that period of the next couple of years, I got to know lots of the new Labour intake of of, um, new MPs. And I was so disappointed. (laughs) They were so disappointing because they were, I suppose, what we would have called at university, careerists, really. And they didn't have any personality. And then you'd meet, of course, the Tories. They were quite good fun. You know, there's nothing more (laughs) terrible than that. Um, Yeah. But humour can be, humour in that situation can be, in politics, it's, it's like Johnson and his whole bumbling, oaf sort of shtick. You know, it's interesting how people play on those things, don't they, to create a caricature of a human being that they play to um, rather than their real person. And occasionally the real person comes out, doesn't it? You, you, you see that. Yeah, well, it's
0: it's the, um, the Rishi Sunak when he was asked the yes. question he didn't like. And you suddenly He's Yeah, yeah. He, he suddenly turned. And, and you yeah. and you yeah. would see that with Boris Johnson as well. But yeah. they they seem to do the um the kind of overriding I am humorous and nice thing, but it's 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 very skin deep, isn't it? I think so. They don't really
1: believe it, do they? They're saying what they can together. Perhaps we all do that. I mean, perhaps, you know, my, you know, what do I spend most of my time doing? selling things really selling programs selling people selling sony selling myself you know to people and um and you do you know you 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 have to create a sort of a public persona don't you which is different to the private persona so perhaps we're
0: all guilty of that well that to an extent but you've been very successful in your career and i think that uh, we've had you know conversations whereby i think that you actually embody the whole humorology concept in the sense that you do really like people. You do really, really, and and that's, you're not playing at that. You're seeing the good side of people uh, most of the time. And I mean, I've heard you say, my job is to create an environment where talented people can fulfill their potential. What, What part does humor play in that role?
1: Well, I might, our job in TV is really about failure, actually, because most of the things that we develop don't get don't get sold, don't even get made, and then most of the things that do get made meets meets widespread indifference from audience. You know, widespread indifference is our second. is failure followed by widespread indifference, and then you know, because I, I look back when I was head of entertainment at the BBC, we we had. We had two shows that were created that were huge hits, which were Strictly Come Dancing, that then became Dancing with the Stars Around the World, and uh, Dragon's Den. But no one remembers the, I don't know, 20 other shows that we made that no bugger can remember because there was one that was really, really good. Anyway, but, but you know, it's it's, it's failure. And so um, my job as someone who leads oversees a bunch of creative companies and lots of creative people is basically support people when things go wrong, really. It's easy. To be there when things go right you know and uh, by the way i like being there when things go right don't get me <laughs> wrong but um you know my job is to is is to really um dust people down after they've collapsed in the heap after something's gone wrong pick them up dust them down and push them out of again go. and uh a lot of that is of course you've got to use humor you know and it is about I to, to your point, are nice things you're saying about me, and 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 I'm glad the cheque did arrive in time <laughs> for this. But I, I am interested. I like people, and I like people in all their complexity and difficulties. You know, as I've got older, I've realised that you know, I mean, there are there are people I work with who are who sometimes say and do things that you think you shouldn't do, and I'll talk to them about it. And sometimes they listen, and sometimes they don't. But human life is all about complexity really and i think humor is a way that cuts through a lot of that isn't it and you've got to be humorous you've got to be you've got you know you've got to embrace humanity i suppose so to your definition of humorology it's about understanding people and liking people and wanting people to do great things i I love it i mean you know that thing uh you know when your friends are successful, you hate it when your friends are successful. Actually, I'm quite the reverse. I love it. If I, I, even, I like it better with people I don't know are successful. You know, I'm still someone who sends people little handwritten notes if I see something that's a brilliant piece of television or, or something, because I, I, I think people should be told when they do great things. I, I couldn't
0: agree more. I do exactly the same thing. And uh, I, if you actually glory in other people's success, That is having good humour, being... uh, And I actually think that it also aids resilience,
1: doesn't it? Because if you don't take things too seriously... I've had, like all of us in our careers, you know, I've had some terrible moments. I mean, things have gone pretty awful. I mean, I I ruined uh, The Krypton Factor, which was a very successful television show for like 20-something years. and I took it off air. Uh, you know and and when something like that happens which can be there's two ways to respond you either you either go into a corner and cry for quite a long period of time (laughs) you believe me you do but also you just got to face up to it because actually it's when things go wrong you realize actually that's when you take your lessons in life No one, no one really sits around you know thinking too in too much detail about why things really go well um It's really when that deep, dark look into your soul, et cetera. And I realized early on that when things go wrong, you've got to face up to it. You've just got to recognize it. There's no point lying about it. And you, and the only way you can really do that is by humor actually make, because actually that becomes, you know, I'm very, very open with people I work with, particularly young people about things I've got wrong because you want to encourage them because if they don't, Things will go wrong in their careers and their lives. And they've got they've got to learn how to how to respond to that in the right way, I think. And, and a lot, a lot of the time, yeah, it's about having a positive, humorous outlook on life.
0: Well, yeah, it gives you a different perspective, doesn't it? I mean, I I I I think the the term failing funny, i.e., you look at it in a different way, and then you go, well, do you know what? It's going to make a great story. Your story about, you know screwing up the Krypton Factor, is a story that y- you own yes, and, th- yes. and you make it funny. So
1: you reframe the whole thing in your own mind, don't you? Yes, I think that's a good good way of looking at it. Actually. It's certainly true. I think, you, yeah, you have, to, you have to own your failures as, as, uh, as well as your successes.
0: So can you be a great communicator without understanding humour?
1: Oh, that's a good point. Uh, well, I don't know. Was Abe Lincoln a gag master? I don't know if he was really. And he's probably a good communicator. I don't know. You, you could be, I suppose, but I, I, couldn't. I mean, most of my, I mean, one of the few things I'm good at is getting up in front of people and doing a speech off the cuff. I'm quite good at. I'm available to, for hire <laughs> for that, and and I'm 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 quite. I, I know it's good at it, right? And I, I I like an audience. whatever reason i like getting up and i like doing a thing and and sometimes by the way i can get a bit near the knuckle on some of my leaving speeches for people but by and large i think i get away with it um and and so i think humor is a part of communicating with people because people remember the gags don't they but that's pretty much it i mean and and you are A
0: master of communication in that. Oh, you are a charmer. (laughs) No, well, you know, all right. I mean, I'm blowing some smoke. I know, but you know, it's like a chimney. (laughs) But actually, the reason that you do it is because you say you enjoy it, and you actually it becomes a self fulfilling prophecy. Uh, We have a lot of people who obviously are hate it because um, you know the seventy percent of people's worst nightmare is to stand up and do it. What advice would you give to people who who have to get up and speak at work events or or weddings or
1: whatever. You just gotta throw yourself into it. And you've got to control the people get nervous about getting on a stage, don't they? And and I think you've got to, first of all, you've got to own the stage physically, you know, you gotta you gotta walk around and you've got to give eye contact with people. You know, people once you get obviously not stare at them continually Paul, like you do in that sort of slightly stalkish way, but no, <laughs> you 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 know you gotta you gotta work the room, haven't you? You know, it's all about those things that you just you know when you come on, you own the space. Once you own the space physically, you're you're confident about talking, I think. And and you've got to be very physical about it, you've got to use your arms and your hands um and 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 i always think when you address a group of people trying to get as much eye contact as possible and then if you're doing a work thing or something where you know people in the crowd just i always i always have a few people i pick on in inverted commas you know it's like any any stand-up comedian you see them go on they'll, they'll get their mark in the audience, and they'll they'll keep, keep going back to that person or what have you but it, it it builds up a rapport with people and that's what you're always looking for when you're you're communicating with people isn't it a rapport how do you make them all feel they're part of the conversation and engage there's nothing more when you do presentations and you look around the room you see someone falling asleep I mean that's that's pretty we've all been there haven't we no
0: It's also what you're talking about there in terms of uh, psychology is you're talking about state management. You're managing your state. And uh, there's a saying with if you want anyone to go into any state, you have to go into that state first. And you're kind of doing the look, I'm I'm relaxed. And then everybody goes. Somebody's in charge. Yeah. Yeah. You're absolutely right. You've known many, many successful people. Obviously, uh, throughout the years from sports, uh, I'm thinking of Sir Alex and uh, to, you know, stars all over the world. What is that special source oh, that God. they have? No, no. But is, is humour part of that special source that, uh, that, uh, that gives them that elevation?
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I spent a bit, quite a bit of time with Fergie when I was younger. I mean, he was very kind to me. He was very, very kind to. He, he had a terrible temper, and you just occasionally see that at, at times. I remember, but but he 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 was very kind to young people. Kenny Dalglish was the other one. When I was a sports, when I started, I had two teams to look after, which was Man U with Fergie and Liverpool with Dalglish. And I remember once ringing up Dalglish to ask for an interview for a. a you know, we did this weekly football show, and I remember, and we wanted. I can't remember where, Bruce Grobbler or something. And he was like, no, why do you want to talk to Bruce? And they go, well, it's, I don't know, he's playing his 600th game or something, some nonsense like that or whatever, you know. And they go, no, 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 you don't want to talk to him. You want to talk to Stevie Nicol." And Stevie Nichol, who was a great footballer, was, of course, a terrible speaker. And Doug Leach knew this. And and knew I didn't want him, and he was just taking the piss, really. And you, first of all, you go because you're intimidated because you're a young man, you know. And this is one of the greatest footballers and football managers of ever. You know, what a great man Kenny Dalgliesh is. And and you realised, yeah, you've got to get on their wavelength, don't you? You got to you got to find their their humour, and their humour is great. And then you realise as well, humour is a way that it does it. Once you get on that. It means you no longer see Kenny Delgleesh as this iconic figure that you're not fit to kiss at the hem of his dress, but actually as someone you can relate to. And that's what great people, I think, find a way to, you know. I haven't met people like Obama or Clinton or people like that, but people always say their communication skills making everyone feel, um, you know. You, it was just about you and them. And, and, the, and they, they would also use humor and humanity within that.
0: Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Yeah. Well, I I am lucky enough to have met Bill Clinton and it was extraordinary because, you know, uh, I fell a little bit in love. He does that thing. There's some kind of magic, charisma, you know, extra chromosome, whatever you want to call it. And part of that is about finding a wavelength you use that term you know getting on somebody's wavelength but isn't humor this the most direct way to get on somebody's wavelength if you can laugh yeah. together you you're yeah. sharing
1: something aren't you i think that's right and you and that once you of course if if you know you're going to have a difficult conversation with someone which in my line of work you have to have a lot of that the way you cut through it and, you, and you, your sort of backstop is always the humour. Once you build that relationship, you can laugh about something. You can even approach some really difficult conversations through the humour, can't you? Because you've got that, yeah. you know, you can make light of it. And before they realise it, they've realised, oh, yeah, you're serious about this. And, uh, yeah, a lot of people, I suppose, criticise me. Do they? It's criticism. Sometimes it sort of sounds like it and they go, oh, yeah, yeah. We know, yeah, when you make light of something, you know it's when it's serious, you know, because sometimes you tackle a very serious issue or problem you've got by going about it in a humorous way and and what have you. And then they realize, oh no, there's a serious point to it. So that's the way in. Um, I suppose I do that. I can't think of any examples, there, or certainly none that I can't tell you about, but <laughs> yeah, I I I do that quite a bit thinking about it. Oh my god, this is like being on the humor. Couch, isn't
0: it? What it's here for is to give you a moment to actually think about how important what you do. And I invite people on who I know have a brilliant sense of humor, but it's part of that therapist thing of like, why does it work? You um, as a company you own Who Wants to be a millionaire. And I was wondering because you had the idea to put Jeremy Clarkson in the in the hot seat, and I, I think. Yeah that the difference that made a difference was his humour uh, in that chair. And it was suddenly yeah. elevated the show to yeah. another place.
1: Were you conscious of that at the time? Well, I, I, for some time, I'd been thinking about how we could bring Millionaire back because of the valuable piece of IP that, we, that as you say, we own. And, and and Chris Tarrant had obviously done an amazing job. I mean, he was the one who started what became the biggest game show in history and it was all down to Tarrant and he got it brilliantly right. And um, funny enough, I always fancy Bill Clinton to do it. But because uh, you need somebody, see see, the thing about millionaires, you've got to be smart on that show because it's a technically, it's quite a difficult show to do. Um, but also you've got to, and this is what, so i have known Clarkson for quite a while. And, um, and I don't know why I didn't have the idea five years earlier. I mean, it's funny where ideas come from. But then one day I just thought I'd watch Clarkson do that. Clarkson could do that. Of course he could do that. And, um, and I rang him up and said, look, I've got this idea, but I, I don't want to tell you over the phone because I think you're going to laugh at me, but I want to come and tell you about it. So, and I had this speech prepared, you know, why you should do it, all these reasons, why the show was brilliant. And I sat down and you know, I got my speech ready and I went, so he said, well, what is it? What is, it you, what is this about? I said, I want you to present. Who wants to be a millionaire? And he went, I'm in. And I went, oh, no, hold on. Oh, what do you mean you're in? No, 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 no. What do, you mean? what do you mean you're in? And he said, well, don't you know I love quizzes? And I said, no, I don't know you love quizzes. I, think I knew you loved playing Scrabble, but whatever. And he said, yeah, and the greatest quiz of all time is who wants to be a millionaire? And I can't imagine anything I'd more want to do. And then I went, well, I'm not sure you can do it. You've got to prove to me you can do it. You've just offered it. I said, I'm not I'm not going to ITV with it until you prove to me you can do it. So we got we got some people in. We flew them over from Ireland and we did this sort of test in the in the in an office somewhere. And and what was brilliant was that Matthews, the producer of the show, had come up with the idea that we had this ask the host extra round, oh, yeah. which which I think is a, a bit of genius, and because it allows Jeremy to uh, it, it puts him on once more on the side of the contestant, and and the thing about Jeremy is is that he and I differ on quite a lot of things, quite a lot of things we have quite big rounds about, and and we quite enjoy the cut and thrust of that, but basically the the I, I, people love the farm show, the Clarkson farm show. And people will great say ship. to me, I love him in that show. He's great in that show. And I go, that's the Jeremy Clarkson I love. Because that, that's the Clarkson I know. He's self-deprecating, um, a bit of an idiot, a, a complete tosser. Um, but there's something great about him. And the thing about a millionaire is he's brilliant at it because he wants people to win. And he wants them to do their best. Right, and what disappoints him about some of the contestants is when they they let themselves down, or or, or they're not quite brave enough, or they're not because he wants them to do so well. I mean, he he shed a tear when we had our first millionaire winner. I mean, he I said I went down the year I said you're you're crying. And he went no, not. And I, I I think he was because it, actually it's about their humanity. But yes, he has brought. he's he's a different take on it and he brings humor to it and um yeah it's great he's great on it he's great he's yeah look you you don't it's very rare in in television you have these ideas that you you're actually able to follow through on them and they actually work and that's one of the rare times when it's actually happened Well, it's brilliant so what makes you laugh my wife claims I don't laugh that much, and her greatest success in life is making me giggle because she loves it when I laugh, oh, which I, which I think is a little bit unfair. But um, um, so, what makes me laugh? I don't know. I'm, lots of lots of things make me laugh. I think um, the idiocy of modern life, the Tory party—you know, these idiots <laughs> running the country. I, I mean, I mean, they're just—I was watching that. What? Can you ask me what if Suella Braverman? uh, Did you see that interview? I mean, this this, this is going to date this thing, but she's basically, you know, done something on speeding, whatever. Who knows what she's done? But when she's asked the question, rather than just going, rather than saying, first of all, I got caught speeding, I got the points, I paid the fine, end of story, right? That that sort of, end everyone goes, fair enough. I don't really care what you know. You might have tried it, whatever. Instead, she comes up with this parroting. My focus is on the five priorities of the government. And you're going, like, no, no. You suddenly, now we think there's smoke. There's not just a smoke. There's a forest fire behind you. <laughs> anyway, so that makes me laugh. Um, and, um, oh, I know people make me laugh. People doing, you know, just people. Because we do, we do silly things, don't we? My daughters make me laugh. A couple of idiots. You know, you know, I mean, you know lots of people even you occasionally have made me
0: laugh well let's not go too far okay <laughs> no but it, it it is about that that ability to actually see
1: the silly isn't it i i think the absurdity like look what one thing yeah. i will say is i i did um, talking about my lovely wife i i did say to very early on in our relationship don't take me too i can't take myself too seriously i i, I work in an absurd industry uh of of nonsense and i'm a laughable figure within that because i I don't i don't i i think taking yourself too seriously is the worst thing in life if you can't laugh at yourself you know then i think you're in a you're a very poor soul you know and and so probably the person i laugh at most is probably my own idiocy (laughs) No, but but that's
0: brilliant. I mean, I think it's actually very, very important for people to be able to, because otherwise you otherwise you become a a Tory MP and you you can't see the funny side of we are all fundamentally ridiculous.
1: Yes, we are. Yes, we are. We're absolutely ridiculous.
0: And 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 that's that's a great answer. It's one of my favourite answers.
1: That's why you should you should never look at yourself dancing or having sex, Eugene. I don't think because <laughs> there, yes, that would be taking it to a yes. Note to self: get
0: rid of the mirror above the bed. Yes, yes. <laughs> I would. As a fan with uh, Manchester United, I love to go back yeah. to Manchester United. Have you? ever found any inspiration or, or parallels between the worlds of television production and the world of football? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah.
1: All the time. All the time. When I was, uh, I started my career under a legendary head of Granada sport called Paul Doherty, whose father was a, a great Irish footballer, um, who also managed Manchester City for a while. And um, when well, they weren't very good. And uh and Paul ran us like a sports unit. And and what you realized was um, you know, teamwork, everything, loyalty to each other, and and also what what you often do is you have a common, you know, you gotta you go have a common enemy. You know, Ferguson's brilliant at that. But I saw that you see it in other people, you know, there's there's someone you you gotta have someone outside who you're you're you know against or something that you can judge yourself about you know and um i think in a lot of the places i've run and and stuff like that always always had that and then the other great thing i think i think about this a lot with ferguson was he created three possibly four great teams and he never rested on his laurels and there's that thing about when you look at the growth of any company in any industry there's a curve of growth and and then it it inevitably tapers off and, and the thing to do is just before you reach the peak, you have to change things to do that. And I was mindful of that. In some of the places I've worked, you know, how do you, uh, particularly when I was wearing BBC Entertainment, you know, you think, you think you know, you can't rest on your laurels. You've got to, you, you've, got to you've got to, you've got to unfortunately get rid of Paul Ince, Mark Hughes and Andre Konchelskis because you've got the Neville's Beckham and Scholes coming through. And then you have to get rid of Beckham because you've got, Cristiano Ronaldo coming through, or whatever. You know, it's constant reimagining yourself, and um, and that that's that's quite. And the other thing about football is is that football changes all the time. You know, and and we're always trying to compare. You know, this team's better than that team, which you can't. Obviously, you can't do. It's a good good game, but football changes quite dramatically, and it's very. You know, um, and and also new stars come up the whole time. You know, and you've got to be, if you're interested in football, you've got to be, you can be a talent monitor and so on like that. And you have to do that in my game as well. You know, you've got to be aware who's coming up and you've got to, you've got to change your, um, your style of play to the environment. You know, I mean, I started out, you know, at, at Sony when, when I arrived, we were largely non scripted, that shows like game shows and what have you. Now we're mostly scripted companies because we could see a change coming with the growth of streaming services and we acquired Left Bank and we bought, 11 films and, and Bad Wolf and now we're you know we're doing really well on that and then, but you constantly I keep thinking to myself well what's next what's going to change and and so on I think also the great thing about it, it's how you keep yourself fresh and and sort of um, I mean how did Ferguson stay at the top for so long because he kept renewing himself but he kept finding that unbelievable passion um, and desire to be at the top and that that's really difficult in any walk of life. And, you know, most football managers have a, a strict shelf life. It's getting younger. You've got a lot of football managers now are in their 30s. Um, they'll probably be burnt out by the time they're 50. You know, it used to be you become a football manager probably around about 40. You get to 50. I mean, some of these great managers like Shankly and Busby weren't that old when they retired. No. What we look at now. Um, so, I, I yeah, the, for, I, I'm probably too fond of the football analogy.
0: No, I d- I don't think you can be too fond because I think it's very relevant. I I also think what I wanted to just delve very quickly into was um, putting personalities together, which is the, the yes. this is the humorology project. How are you doing that? What are you looking at? Because what Fergie was a genius at was making sure that those personalities gelled, whether that was humor or whether that was humanity. What, what what's your idea on that how do you uh, give people jobs for instance what are you what's it based on
1: well you've got to be very careful haven't you that you don't go for the sort of people like us you know you employ people like you you know one of the the great things about having a mixture of companies is is that you you understand you need diversity of voice and opinion and so on and that one of the you know the challenges in our industry is you know um, how do we how do we get greater diversity and for me it's not just about race and ethnicity it's about class as well and um, I think about that a lot and I don't think I've, I've been as, achieved as much in that as I should have done um, but I I, I, th- I think it is about yeah finding that it's it's brilliant isn't it you, you work out I remember when we set up some of these. When I was at BBC Worldwide, we set up a lot of independent companies because we weren't, weren't allowed to buy any companies. So I decided, well, I'm going to sell my own. So And then you look at, you know, you want a creative lead probably and you want someone who does the business. And that was a little model we you. And we set up a couple of companies that, that – that was really good. We always found it yin to someone else's yang. And then you work out, well, then then you need someone else as the company grows bigger. What else do you need? And, and, and what strengths of that person and the weaknesses of that? And and how are you – you know, and, and also one of the other things is is about letting people go, you know, which is the most difficult thing in in many ways, because you grow up together, um, you know, you have a team and, and you achieve good things, great things together. And then you've got to recognise sometimes you've got to move people on because people people become, you know, at some stage someone's gonna move me on from this job, I hope. You know, I mean, I I you know, you know, one day someone's gonna tap me on the shoulder and go, it's all over, mate. And, and that's right, and that's proper, and that's where it should go. But you've got to be as leader of those these businesses. You, you've got to take that view, and sometimes that means you have to make very difficult decisions when you know the human beings involved, because it's about the the, the business. Or in Ferguson's case, the football club. You know, he had to, yeah. uh, there were people he had had since the age of sixteen who he who he cared about deeply, but he was able to take that. You know. Some would call it ruthless. I wouldn't. I, I just think it's clarity. It's clarity, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. And then you've got to handle, you know, I mean, Ferguson sometimes got it wrong. A few people. But then, you know, but you've got to handle it right. You've got to you've got to help people exit in the way that the that, uh, respects them, you know, and, and demonstrates what they have brought to you as a, you know, I think that's important. Yeah. Respect.
0: Respect, which is all, um, and doing it the right way. Well, Wayne, we've reached the point of the show, which we like to call quick fire questions. Okay. Quick on. On. Okay.
1: Quick fire questions.
0: Who's the funniest business person that you've met in your career?
1: Uh, I think Tim Hinks is a very funny man. My friend Tim. In terms of uh, David Quantic, who's a writer, who's worked on loads of stuff, I always think Quantic might be... Johnny Vaughan introduced me to him back in the day and said, Quantic, he's the funniest man in England. And I've always thought Johnny was absolutely right about that. And Quantic is still probably the funniest man in England. Uh, I'm going to have
0: both of them on the show, just on your recommendation.
1: (laughs) You won't be disappointed. Uh,
0: What book makes you laugh?
1: Uh well, I used to, I used to always be a big fan. You might find this odd, really, but I've always loved those even more vile bodies decline and fall. I recently read a book that I read recently. It really made me laugh. Is the trees by Everett Percival was it Percival Everett? Uh, whatever. Um, which is a brilliantly black humor, uh, book which I I can't recommend enough. That that made me laugh. I I always like satire, I suppose. I, as a kid, I loved you know Swift, Gulliver's Travels, and. Condé, Voltaire, and all those kind of things, those classic humorous stuff. What film makes you laugh? There's one scene that I come back to, in a, there's a film called The Best in Show, which is about oh, a dog yeah. show. And in it, Eugene Levy plays a character who has two left feet, except they are literally two left feet. And I don't know why, just thinking about it now makes me laugh. Whenever I see it, that little scene, and they show shows little feet, always makes me laugh.
0: Well, uh, well, of course it's Christopher Guest, isn't it? Who yeah, also yeah. did Spinal, yeah. Tap, Spinal Tap, and I think yeah. genius, um, yeah. You know, and uh, actually, uh, everybody talks about Spinal Tap, but I think Best in Show is right up there with it as well. Yeah, I'd agree. So, oh, very, very funny, and that that whole cast he keeps getting yes. into the same mm-hmm. people around. Yeah. Magnificent. Let's take a shift to the other side. Um, what's not funny?
1: Racism, misogyny, um, any, any exploitation of any other human beings. I can't find any humour in all those. I think misogyny is one of the worst things in society. I find that. I, I, I can't fucking hate it. I hate it when people don't treat, or, or, you know, you see some of these attitudes now coming back again. You thought, I thought we'd moved on from that. Yeah, you know, treating. I, I have a, a poster in my office which is um, "Work hard and be kind," and I think show kindness and tolerance to other human beings. One of the great things about living in London is that it is genuinely one of the most tolerant places in the world, and you can largely. There's a few people out there who aren't, um, but by and large, you can be who you want to be. And what and why shouldn't let humanity? You know, do no harm to others and and be kind to other people. Seems to me be a pretty good way to lead your life. Absolutely. I couldn't
0: agree more. What word makes you laugh? Boros. <laughs> <laughs> I'm laughing. Do you know what it means, by the way? No, I don't. It's Hungarian. It, it, it's a bore in Hungarian is wine. And I am the keeper of the wine.
1: In so many ways.
0: <laughs> yes. It's, it keeps quite a lot of it, doesn't it?
1: Yes, yeah, you're an old um, wine sack. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Thank you. That's the nicest thing anybody's ever said to me. Uh, what sound makes you laugh?
1: What <laughs> sound makes me laugh? I don't know. Um oh I'll tell you what, I've got a Tesla and they have that little on the tesla you have this thing where it makes a farting sound when you turn and so you, when you first get it you find it you think this is ridiculous why has someone gone to this effort to do this this is a ridiculous thing and then you call, you know you put the kids in or whatever or friends and you drive around it starts farting and each farting noise is different it's the most childish thing in the world and yet it's it's brilliant that someone's just done it. it's ridiculous i'm laughing about it there
0: you go, there you go. Uh, Um, penultimate question. Um, Yes. You've got a PhD. You're very bright. Would you rather be considered clever or funny?
1: Oh, Christ. I'm just happy to be considered.
0: (laughs) Fair enough. Fair enough. (laughs) And the final question is Desert Island gags. You can only take one joke with you. a desert island what is it
1: i'm afraid it's an adolf hitler gag i think so um they find adolf hitler this 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 can't happen now but in the 1970s adolf hitler's discovered living in bolivia or venezuela or somewhere and um and he's brought back he's flown back to munich and there's a big press conference and all the the world is waiting Uh, hitler's been found terrible man Obviously, and they tend to say uh, they interview him, which is obviously what they would do because, of course, people would fall over him. And they say, "So, Mister Hitler, if you had your time all over again, uh, how would you change things? This time, no more Mister Nice Guy." <laughs> I don't know why is that an acceptable joke these days? I don't know. Is it? I mean, it's just you know. No, of course that's a great. I always topic. think. I was thinking of the Clash, white man in Hammersmith Palais, If. if Adolf Hitler flew in today to send the limousines out to meet him, and and that's so true. Yeah, no,
0: that's brilliant. Well, uh, Wayne Garvey, thank you so much. I consider you the Sir Alex of television production, and uh, (laughs) idiot. (laughs) And and thank you so much for being a guest on the Humorology podcast. Paul, it's been a pleasure.
1: Lovely to see you and talk to you as ever. Lovely to see you.
0: The Humorology Podcast was hosted by Paul Barros, produced by David Rose. Music by Steve Hayworth, creative direction by Les Hughes, and additional research by Helen Sykes. Please remember to subscribe, like, and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. This has been a Big Sky Production.